0: Well, I want to greet each one in Jesus' name this morning. It's good to be here. It's good to have the youth back from their time away. I'm not sure anybody in the church feels uh, the youth being away more keenly than we do at, at our place. We lose most of our children and all of our workers and it just seems like things aren't right. It was good last evening I came out from working on my sermon and the two doors, uh, Jacob and Jessica's, were already closed in the light off earlier than I would have expected. And I imagine they went pretty hard on their break. So I feel a little bit of a challenge this morning. I know uh, Jacob and Jessica were stumbling around a little bit tired. I don't know how it is in the other houses, but it reminded me of the first time I preached away from Shade Mountain was at SMBI. And uh the students there filed in. It was a group about this size, but all young people, of course. They had just returned from a musical tour this Saturday night before the Sunday morning service at 2.30 in the morning. And they were dead beat. I have never had such a tired audience. And by the end of the sermon, I'm not going to say a quarter of them, but something close to that were out. I felt a little badly in some places adjacent people were out and had their heads together. That was uh, a little humbling first time away. Um, I thought this morning if I could keep these front two benches awake, sermon wasn't a total loss. I'll let you know that's my goal today. Promise not to pick you out if you descend into meditation (laughs) while I'm preaching. When we uh, first started visiting, I'll say, here at Shade Mountain, it was probably 17 or 18 years ago, something like that. Uh, one of the first things I noticed is the greeting that we'd receive from everybody, without fail, the same greeting every time. The Lord bless you. The Lord bless you. I don't know if you thought about it, but neither Rebecca or I have ever been greeted with that greeting ever in our life. Until we came here and here, every time, every person, without fail, the exact same greeting, the Lord bless you. Well, I wasn't put off by it. It was just kind of strange and unusual. And I found myself wondering, I wonder what blessing I'm being wished. Wealth, health, wisdom, righteousness, safety. I'm not sure even today. For sure, when I greet someone without blessing, what I'm wishing them other than a little bit of a vague idea that I wish you God's blessing. I'm sure it's different for different people. I don't mean to be critical of that blessing. I appreciate it. But there are another, uh, ethnic group that uh, understand themselves to be God's people that greet without fail every time with precisely the same greeting. And they're the offer of God's blessing is more specific. And these would be the Jewish people. And they offer a greeting when they meet someone and a greeting when they depart. that's a single word, always the same, without fail, never different. And the word is shalom. That is, you are being wished peace. Peace of God. How is it with you this morning? Are you experiencing peace? the peace of God. I thought about how many of us might be adequate painters to paint a picture. I'm not, but I know there are a few. I would expect more so on the sister's side than on the brother's side. But if I was to set up a canvas up front here and ask someone to come up and paint a picture of peace, what would it look like? What would you expect? What would a... painting of perfect peace look like what do you picture in your mind's eye if you can't paint it can you at least think about it if you were called on to come up front and paint for us a picture of perfect peace what would it look like i don't want to uh I guess expose where I'm headed in this sermon or in the sermons to come too early. But a number of you would know that I had in my last message finished the book of Ephesians and I need to uh, start in another book or I feel the need to I'd like to do that this morning. I don't know as you follow along the discussion whether some of you will figure out what book I'm headed for, but I'll give you something to think about. So we talk about peace. It says in Colossians 3.15, let the peace of God rule in your hearts. Is the peace of God ruling in your hearts this morning? Are you experiencing the peace of God in your lives? This morning, this past week? What is the peace of God? You need to be careful to not confuse it with peace with God. That is, peace with God is necessary to experience the peace of God, but it's not sufficient. You can have peace with God and be missing the blessing of the peace of God. So what I want to talk about this morning is not peace with God, but the peace of God. Turn with me, if you would, to John 14. I'll look at a verse there. Familiar verse, but I don't think the thought that Jesus expresses here is just crystal clear unless we stop and think about it. John, excuse me, John 14, verse 27. Jesus says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. All right, we notice here that Jesus' gift of peace is different from the world's gift. The world offers a form of peace, and Jesus says his peace is different. In the verse before this verse, we find what Jesus says is the source of that peace. He says in verse 26, The Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name. He shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I've said unto you. So he goes on then to say, Peace I leave with you. This is the source of our peace, the comforter, the Spirit of God. Peace of God is a fruit of the Spirit. Apart from the Spirit, no one can know the peace of God. I don't think I've gotten too far out on a limb yet. I have a little further to go yet. Turn to Philippians chapter four. Thinking still about the peace of God and whether we are experiencing it. I should ask you whether you have a desire to experience the peace of God. Is it important to you? Are you satisfied without it? Philippians chapter four, verse six. Be careful for nothing. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. All right. Another familiar passage talking about the peace of God. We learn four things here about the peace of God real quick in two short verses. What do we learn? Starting in verse six. First. If you want to have the peace of God, you need to be anxious or worrying or careful for nothing. Absolutely nothing. There's nothing set aside that's permitted for you to be anxious or worried about. Be careful for nothing. Everything is excluded. Goes on to say that everything then is included in what we're to be praying and supplicating to God for. Everything nothing worrying, everything praying. That's the second thing. Third thing we learn about the peace of God is that it guards our hearts and minds. I don't know how many of you feel like your hearts and minds are pretty well bulletproof. You can experience the Christian life and follow Jesus regardless of the state of your hearts and minds. Are you that secure in your faith? The peace of God Keeps or guards your hearts and minds. The last thing we learn about the peace of God in these two verses is. In verse seven, that the peace of God passeth all understanding. It's beyond understanding. It's unknowable. Well, how is that? How can you possess something and not even know it? You have the peace of God, but you don't have to be bothered thinking about it or even knowing if you have it because it's beyond understanding. It's inscrutable. You can't figure it out. It, It can't be understood. It passes understanding. Is that what this verse is teaching about the peace of God? Passes understanding. You don't even know it. You don't know what it is. You don't know the depths of it. It's beyond understanding. I think that's a misunderstanding of this verse. I think what this verse is saying is that the peace that you as a child of God can experience cannot be known if you're not a child of God. The world knows nothing of a Christian's peace. Try to describe it to a non-Christian. They'll be baffled by it. The peace of God in a Christian is unknowable apart from being a child of God. We can know it. It's beyond the understanding of the worldling. It's not beyond the understanding of the child of God. That's a little mini lesson in the peace of God. I don't know if some of you are speculating on what book I'm headed for to start a series to preach through. But it has something to do with the peace of God. Peace that passes understanding. I was... uh I did a little calculating. This Friday is coming is August 27th. And August 27th, eight years ago, I think I told this story before, but in a different context. Jacob and I were at a farm market in Washington, D.C., and we experienced an earthquake that shook the sidewalk pretty good. I could see the sidewalk moving. It apparently shook the Washington Monument enough to crack, crack it badly enough they had to close it, and they've just finished repairs on it. Uh, recently. During that earthquake, the office buildings emptied. The doors flew open and streams of people came onto the street where we were setting up farm market, screaming, crying, running, yelling. I've never seen such a distraught people. And one woman stood out in my mind. She ran up to me and she said a bomb went off. You have to get out of here. And I didn't know what to say to her. I was kinda of baffled. I, I wasn't afraid. I was concerned and I, I wondered a little what was going on. I knew it wasn't a bomb. And I guess I just stood at her long enough with my mouth hanging open that she rolled her eyes, threw up her hands and gave up on me and looked down at Jacob, who was 11 years old and said, you and your dad have to get out of here. And she went off running. I don't know of another time that I was so aware of the fact that I had a peace that passed understanding. And that was I was confident that I knew the one that had the future in his hands. And what was happening was disturbing. But I didn't think to be afraid and certainly not to run and scream and cry and grab little children by the shoulder and tell them, tell your daddy has to get out of here. Peace that passes understanding. The peace that Jesus gives is not the worldlings peace. When the worldling comes up here to paint his picture of peace, it shouldn't look like ours. Our picture should look different. The worldling cannot experience and cannot even understand the Christian's peace. That peace is a powerful testimony. It's not just a blessing for us. It is a blessing for us. It's nice to have peace. But it's also a powerful testimony. And if we aren't walking in the peace of God, we're missing out on our most powerful opportunity to testify to the gospel. All right. Not too long ago in our daily bread, there was a description of what a painting would look like if you painted perfect peace. Let me read this to you. I don't know if this is a true story or not. It doesn't really matter. But you think about the picture I asked you to Imagine in your mind's eye of perfect peace. A contest was held. Artists were invited and asked to paint a picture of perfect peace. The entries were judged to the point that there were two remaining. One would be the winner and one would not be the winner. They narrowed the field down to these two paintings. The first painting was a scene of a placid, smooth, crystal clear, quiet mountain lake with the surrounding mountains perfectly reflected in the perfectly calm surface of the water. The second was a very different picture. The second painting had a roaring, thundering waterfall pictured. A branch of a birch tree extended out over the waterfall and was being thrashed by the foam. In the fork of that limb was a small bird's nest, and in the small bird's nest was a mother bird quietly sitting on her eggs. The first picture spoke of tranquility, but the second picture, excuse me, the second picture won the prize. It showed In dramatic detail, the calm that can be found in the midst of turbulent surroundings. It is easy to remain calm when everything is quiet and serene, but to rest while the storm rages, that is perfect peace. That, excuse me, that is the message of Peter's first epistle. God grants his people supernatural peace in the midst of a storm. All right, the book of Ephesians had a, a big story. I kind of like a, a theme that breaks a long, complicated book down into a simple thought. The big story in Ephesians was... As the people of God, we are rich. We're called to be rich. So we have unsearchable riches. We're commanded to walk worthy. We're a wealthy people. We should walk like a wealthy people. We are rich. Be rich. First Peter was suggested to me by. Uh, I told the ministers this morning, two or three witnesses. I had a lot of people ask me what I was going to preach in next, but very few uh had a suggestion, but first Peter did come up a number of times. So that's where I'd like to go. First Peter has a big message in it also. The big message in first Peter is you will suffer, be hopeful. You will suffer, be hopeful. The peace of God, the peace that Jesus gives that passes understanding is not the peace of that mountain lake. It's the peace of the bird going about her business, doing what she was created for and called to do in the midst of a storm. I'm sure other people would have a different idea about what the book of First Peter is about. But that's mine. I find it interesting that we have the Apostle Paul and we know him to be the Apostle of faith. And we have the Apostle John. He's known as the apostle of love. Peter is the apostle of hope. Peace of God. Calm in the midst of a storm. Hope is central to Peter's epistles. I don't know if you've ever heard the story of how your Bibles, the New Testament, came to be ordered the way they are. We know that order very well. I don't see very many of us turning to the table of contents to find the book of Acts. We know where to go. Did you ever wonder how they came to be in that order? It's my understanding that when Luther wrote his Bible, there were a variety of orders of the books in the New Testament. And Luther decided he was going to set down the order in a way that made sense. And he chose to highlight the books at the beginning of the New Testament that most described Christ and the gospel. That is, the further you would get, I believe Revelation he put at the end where it needed to be at the end, but in between, where he felt Christ was depicted and the gospel declared, those books got placed early in the New Testament. And as it went on, he came to the uh, book of James and he called it a right strawy epistle. Nothing of the gospel, nothing of the savior, in the book of James. Put that late in the New Testament. Peter falls behind James. Even less of Christ and less of the gospel. In Luther's view. First Timothy 1.1. Statements made that Jesus Christ is our hope. And I would say that an epistle. That's theme is hope. Has Christ very prominent in it? All right, I asked the question early on, is the peace of God ruling in your hearts? What does it look like when the peace of God rules in your hearts? Turn with me to Acts chapter 5. We should read this whole account, but I'm going to summarize it for you. In Acts 5, verse 12 to 16, we have the apostles doing signs and wonders. Recently, after Pentecost, equipped to do signs and wonders. They're healing the multitudes and they're driving out unclean spirits. Acts 5, verse 17 to 25. The apostles are locked up for healing the multitudes and driving out unclean spirits. But the angel of the Lord came and opened the prison doors and released them. And back they are, teaching and healing the people. We come to Acts 5, verse 26. I'm going to go ahead and read, starting here. Thinking about, again, what the peace of God looks like when it rules... In our hearts. Then went the captain with the officers and brought them without violence, for they feared the people lest they should have been stoned. That is, they went and politely asked the apostles to come with them when they had returned to teaching and healing in the temple after the angel of the Lord had released them. In verse 27, when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest asked them, saying, Did not we straightly command you that you should not teach in this name? And behold, you've filled Jerusalem with your doctrine. You intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom ye slew and hanged on a tree. Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things, and so is also the Holy Ghost, whom God hath given to them that obey him. When they heard that, they were cut to the heart and took counsel to slay them. Then stood there up one in the council, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a doctor of the law, had a reputation among all the people and commanded to put the apostles forth a little space, Okay, they sent the apostles outside, kind of like we do when we're taking counsel or doing something related to a member or a prospective member. Step outside. We want to talk about you behind your back. They set the apostles forth a little space. Verse 35, Gamaliel said unto them, You men of Israel, take heed to yourselves which you intend to do touching these men. For before these days rose up Theudas." boasting himself to be somebody, to whom a number of men, about four hundred, joined themselves, who was slain, and all as many as obeyed him were scattered and brought to naught. After this man rose up Judas of Galilee in the days of taxing and drew away much people. After him he also perished, and all, even as many as obeyed him, were dispersed. And now I say unto you, refrain from these men. Let them alone, for if this counsel or this work be of men, it will come to naught. But if it be of God, ye cannot overthrow it, lest haply ye be found even to fight against God. And to him they agreed. All right, these next two verses are why I read this passage, so uh, let's not miss this. To him they agreed, and when they had called the apostles and beaten them, they commanded they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And they, the apostles, departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing. They were accounted worthy to suffer. What does it look like when the peace of God rules in your hearts? It's not the tranquil, quiet mountain lake. It's the bird that finds its place and finds its value and finds its joy in carrying out what it's been called to do in the midst of the storm. The apostles rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer. That, I believe, is the message of First Peter, that we are to bend our minds around the fact that we are not looking for a quiet, comfortable life. We don't expect that. That's not normal. All right. If you want to get all your note taking for the book of first Peter over with real quick here in this message, I'll give you three things to write down. Because I will say that we're going to keep coming back to these three recurring truths all through the book of first Peter. So when you take notes during some of the other messages, you can just write these three down. And when I say something that refers to number two, just write a two. Something that refers to number one, write a one. Let me give you these three recurring truths. These are sources of supernatural hope in the midst of suffering. These are valuable resources. These things are very important. If you want to let the peace of God rule in your heart, you need to have these three things. Supernatural sources of hope in the midst of suffering. First, this world is not our home. We sing that song. This world is not my home. I'm just passing through. We're going to find words over and over in the epistle of First Peter like strangers, sojourners, pilgrims, foreigners. God's people are not at home in this world. We're aliens. We'll hear this over and over. This world is not our home. It's a bad sign if you feel that this world is your home. You cannot experience the peace of God ruling in your hearts. You cannot have perfect peace in the midst of the storm if this world is your home. This is a recurring message in 1 Peter. Number one. Number two, another recurring message. Expect adversity. Suffering is normal expect adversity suffering is normal the Christian life is a battle we wear armor we don't put on recreational gear and go on a hot air balloon ride if you are experienced experiencing peace and comfort and prosperity you're in an abnormal condition as a child of God Peter is going to labor to explain to us that adversity and suffering (laughs) are expected and normal. Second Timothy 312 is a troubling verse. If this world is my home and I expect a comfortable, quiet life, I don't really understand this verse. All that will live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer. Persecution. Peter's is not a popular gospel. Suffering and affliction I've never prayed for it. Good news is I don't need to pray for it, and neither do you. But you do need to expect it. When I was in 6th, 7th, 8th grade, a little bit of ninth grade, I was on the wrestling team. I don't know if I've used this illustration before, but I, I think it's helpful. When we were getting ready to wrestle, we would stand facing our opponent. So it would be me and the guy that was going to beat me, because I, I always lost. That's why I didn't last past ninth grade. It finally got pathetic enough. The coach asked me to quit. But when we would be sparring and practicing with each other, the coach would say. So two young men standing facing each other, he would say. Assume a defensive position. And we would go from standing like this, which it would take one finger on my chest to knock me over backwards. We would assume a defensive position which looked like this, a foot back, a foot forward, hands up. It'd take a lot more than a finger to push me back now. Assume a defensive position. Expect suffering and affliction. Assume a defensive position. It will take more than a finger to set you back. The next word from the coach would be wrestle. Then everything would happen really fast. It's too late when the coach said wrestle and you haven't assumed a defensive position. It's too late to assume a defensive position. You're on your back. Peter will warn us again and again. Assume a defensive position. Suffering and affliction are normal. In the Christian life, expect it, prepare for it. Truth number two. Adversity and suffering are normal. Charles Spurgeon said, are you a comfortable Christian? You might want to tune out a little for this. You might find this offensive. Are you comfortable as a Christian? Are you comfortable in your Christian life? Charles Spurgeon said, a comfortable Christian is a compromising Christian. His comfort will cost him more than he can imagine. A comfortable Christian is a compromising Christian. We live in an age of peace and prosperity. Suffering and affliction seem far. Comfort seems a worthy goal. If that is how you feel about the Christian life, you will find the book of 1 Peter unsettling. All right, the third recurring truth The third resource to allow you to experience hope in the midst of suffering. The world is not your home. You're a stranger. You've assumed a defensive position. You're expecting suffering and affliction. Third, the end of all things is at hand. The end of all things is at hand. Over and over in the book of First Peter, this truth comes up. What do we do about that? Well, what if Jesus was coming at six o'clock this evening and we knew it would it change what we would do this afternoon It would change what I would do this afternoon? I somehow think I might not need that nap so bad. Six and a half hours, Jesus is returning. Peter's going to ask us to live that way all the time. Keep that attitude. The end of all things is at hand. Live in earnest. Jesus could return today. Henry Morris had a plaque on his desk. I think about it often. Two simple words. Perhaps today. Perhaps today. His idea was my life should be influenced by the fact that I understand that the end of all things is at hand. That is going to change how I live. That is a powerful tool to have joy and hope and peace in the midst of suffering. I don't know, I finished writing these three truths down and thought, well, that could save us a lot of trouble going through 1 Peter if we could just get our arms around these three truths, but Lord willing, we're going to go through 1 Peter and flesh some of that out. All right. I had meant to not disclose um, the book that I would like to preach through until now in the sermon, but I already spilled the beans, sorry about that. Um, In the meantime, maybe some of you are there already. You can turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. This uh, sermon was meant to be mostly an introduction. I don't expect to cover much ground. I would like to get six words covered here. The first six words of the epistle, not even the first verse. Shame on me. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. That is a very short text. But I think it's a good text for an introduction to the book of 1 Peter. I want to take the few minutes I have left here to talk about three things. I want to talk about Peter the man. I want to talk about Peter the disciple. And I want to talk about Peter the apostle of Jesus Christ. Now that sounds like maybe three overlapping points. But Peter's journey from man to disciple to apostle was filled with change. He was not the same man as an apostle that he started with as a disciple. A few things we know about Peter the man. Jesus addresses him as Simon Bar-Jonah. That is the son of Jonah. We know his father. Andrew brought Peter to Jesus. Andrew was Peter's brother. There are four lists of the apostles' names in the Gospels. In all four of them, Peter's name is first. That tells us that Peter was the head of the disciples and he was the oldest, likely the oldest. Peter was the same age as Jesus. That's a pretty well accepted fact that Peter was born, well, one year after Jesus, basically the same A.D. 1. It's an easy birth date to remember. What year were you born? One. Peter was 33 years old, like Jesus, at the time of the crucifixion, resurrection, and Pentecost. When Peter went from being a disciple to an apostle, he was 33 years old. Peter's name was not always Peter. His birth name, his Hebrew name, his given name. From his father, Jonah, was Simon. Simon is not a Jewish name. It's a Greek name. The Hebrew name that it's taken from is Simeon. There are no fewer than nine Israelites in the Old Testament. Given the name Simeon, it was a very common name. I feel like we could have some Simeons in this group. Simeon or Simon comes from the Hebrew word Shema, which is an attentive obedient listener. You could do worse in life than being an attentive obedient listener. Peter was Simon before he was Peter. In John one forty two why don't we turn there? I'm gonna hang on to first Peter, but John one forty two we get to spy on Jesus meeting Peter. And he says this. This would be he, Andrew, brought him, Peter, to Jesus. And when Jesus beheld him, he said, Thou art Simon, Simeon, Shema, attentive, obedient listener. You are the son of Jonah. And you should be called Cephas. So Cephas was was Peter's second name given by Jesus. Cephas is Aramaic. Cephas, Kepha. Kepha means little stone. Jesus called Simon a little stone. You are Kepha, Cephas. It goes on to say, thou shalt be called Kepha, which is by interpretation a stone. If you look up the Greek word there for stone, it's Petros. Petros. You should be called Cephas, which is by interpretation Peter. This is where Peter's name comes from. Peter was the little stone. Peter was a married man. Don't really picture that in disciples, but uh, Jesus healed Peter's wife, uh, mother-in-law. Peter was a married man. Peter was full of imperfection, infirmities, and inflammations. I read that somewhere and I like that. I can identify with that. Peter was full of imperfections, infirmities, and inflammation. Would you have chosen a man like that to be the head of your disciples? I wouldn't. Sounds like trouble. Trouble. I think that it's a powerful apologetic for the truth of the New Testament scriptures that we see in the Gospels such a deeply flawed man as the head of the disciples and later the head of the apostles. The great apostle was great. Peter was great not because he was a great man or even a great disciple. He was great because he possessed a great spirit. All the glory for anything Peter ever said or did. After Pentecost goes to God because Peter was little or nothing before Pentecost. He was a great apostle, not because he was a great man or a great disciple, but because he was a possessor of a great spirit. You possess that same spirit. The Catholics would like to make a pope and a figurehead. A leader of the church out of Peter, he would have nothing of it. He would say there's nothing great about me But the spirit of God dwelling in me, there's a verse in, I should have looked it up. First or second Corinthians says, what do you have that you have not received? And if you did receive it, why do you boast? Let's not make too much of Peter. Peter didn't found the church at Rome. Peter was never the bishop of Rome. As far as history can tell, it's become a Catholic tradition that somehow he was the master and leader of the church. But history doesn't tell us that. All right, Peter, the man, let's talk briefly about Peter, the disciple. Peter was a rough, crude, ignorant, uneducated, ham handed fisherman. If he'd have walked in here in his work clothes, he would have smelled bad. We might have had to stretch to welcome him. Peter was called the stone that didn't float when he tried to walk on water. Started out well. He took his eyes off Jesus and was swallowed by a troubled sea. Can you identify with that? Have you ever taken your eyes off of Jesus and felt yourself being swallowed by a troubled sea? Peter knew all about it. Peter said, no, Lord, you'll never wash my feet. Can you identify with a command of Jesus being repulsive to you? A costly command. No, Lord. Matthew 16. Jesus was descri- describing his betrayal and suffering. And Peter responded, This shall not be unto thee. It's not going to be the way you want, Lord. I won't have it. Jesus called him Satan, told him to get behind him and accused him of loving the things of men more than the things of God. Can you identify with loving the things of men more than the things of God? Peter's set up not to be our Pope or not some high and mighty saint, but our brother. We can identify well with a man who takes his eyes off Jesus and sinks in a troubled sea. Says no Lord to a command that just costs too much. Says this will not be. How about following Jesus afar off? Don't want to take any chances. Don't want to risk any shame. Maybe even bodily danger. Follow Jesus afar off. Peter did that. Peter denied Jesus three times. I know him not. If I know him not was not enough. He added oaths and curses to it. Have you ever denied Jesus in your silence? Peter, the disciple. A very flawed disciple. But we can... Identify, at least sympathize with his shortcomings. Then we come to Peter, the apostle. Turn with me to Acts 4, verse 13. All right, here's Peter and John. In trouble again before the temple authorities. Actually, this was the first time when they, the authorities saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men. Stop here. Many, uh, so-called experts on the scriptures have said, no way Peter wrote the epistle of first Peter. It's a majestic, masterpiece of an epistle there is no way that an unlearned and ignorant man a ham-handed fisherman could have written this epistle modern scholarship is very skeptical that Peter could have written first Peter the problem is they made the mistake the temple authorities make here in verse 13 they saw the boldness of Peter and John they perceived they were unlearned and ignorant men but their perception doesn't stop there it goes on it says they marveled And they took knowledge that these men had been with Jesus. These men had just commanded a man born lame to rise and walk. Ignorant and unlearned fishermen don't heal men born lame either. They don't write epistles as marvelous as first Peter and they don't. Tell the lame to rise and walk, but. Peter had been with Jesus that had made all the difference. All right. Jesus had issued a few specific commands to Peter before he ascended into heaven. He commanded Peter three times, not once, three times, feed my sheep. In writing the epistle of 1 Peter, he was doing exactly that. We are the Lord's sheep today and we are being fed by Peter's ministry. In Luke 22, Jesus said to Peter, when you're converted, strengthen the brethren. We are strengthened today by Peter's faithfulness to that command. He was converted and he strengthened the brethren. If we think like the Catholic Church, that Peter is a great high saint and a pope and the father of the church and something unattainable, as opposed to a brother that had the same spirit we have, we would not see our responsibility when we're converted to strengthen the brethren and to feed God's sheep. But we have that same responsibility. It's Peter's burden in First Peter to let us know that. All right. I want to wrap this up. Peter was 33 years old at the time of Pentecost, preaching there, ministering in the early church. You can picture, you can look around and see what a 33-year-old man looks like. When he wrote the epistle of 1 Peter, he was a 64-year-old man. 30 years. The church of Jesus Christ was 30 years old when he wrote 1 Peter. If I was to tell you that the 60s were a turbulent decade, you would probably think of hippies and drugs and anti-establishment, free love, rejecting authority. The 60s, I was around. I was pretty young. But I've read about them, and it was a turbulent time. 19 centuries before the 1960s was the 60s, the first century, 60s. They were a turbulent time. Turmoil, upheaval. By A.D. 70, the prophecy about the Jewish temple would be fulfilled and it would have not one stone laying on another. The war in Judea, Roman Empire against the Jews would be over and the temple was in smoking ruins. Not one stone laying on another. That was A.D. 70. Back up a little bit to A.D. 64. There's a storm brewing In July of 64, another great event in history, AD 70, we hear a lot about the destruction of the temple. In July of 64, Nero's persecution against a 30-year-old church started. What triggered it was a storm, was a a windy summer week where fire broke out in the city. Nine days later, two-thirds of the city of Rome was in smoldering ruins destroyed by the great fire of Rome. It burned for nine summer days. Rome is divided into two-thirds and a third by the Tiber River. On one side of the Tiber River, you're on the right side of the tracks, and on the other side, you're on the wrong side of the tracks. The Christians primarily were on the wrong side of the tracks. The poor one-third of the city of Rome was across the Tiber River. The Tiber River broke the fire, and not a single... I shouldn't say not a single. Basically, no Christians were affected by the fire. The wealthy side of the river, where two-thirds of the city was utterly destroyed, was where the wealthy pagans lived. Right after the fire, the people were rebelling. They were starving. They were in mourning. And they were angry at the emperor Nero. He had done very little to use the power of the government to fight the fire. And after the fire, he left the people to rot in their misery. And they were revolting. They were rebelling. Nero was terrified and came up with a plan to blame the Christians. It was a, actually a very intelligent plan because the Christians were unscathed by the fire. History has pretty well assigned Emperor Nero with responsibility for setting the fire intentionally. He had laid plans for a grand new city and couldn't figure out how to accomplish it. He wanted to rebuild a city that would be the marvel of the world instead of kind of the shabby, hodgepodge, whatever Rome was in its day. He wanted to build a city that included a temple or a palace for him. It was going to be called the Golden Palace. It was going to occupy one third of the real estate in the city of Rome. His palace was going to occupy one third of Rome, and then the buildings around would all be redone in a marvelous fashion. He had a lot of reason to burn the city. It accomplished his urban renewal plan all in one swoop. It's believed that the epistle of First Peter was written by Peter in AD 64 in the ashes of Rome. uh, you still have 1 Peter, turn to the last chapter of 1 Peter, we read verse 13. The church that is at Babylon, elected together with you, saluteth you. Well, this gives us a clue that 1 Peter was written from Rome, and it was written right before Peter was martyred. The church that is at Babylon is a euphemism for Rome. That would protect Rome if this letter fell into hands of enemies of the church, the church that is a Babylon. Well, that would throw them off a little bit. Okay, we don't go right to Rome and start knocking heads together there. What's this Babylon thing? Babylon was a euphemism for Rome. So I said it was written in the ashes of Rome to prepare a young church in the Roman Empire for a tidal wave of state sponsored terrorism that was going to be set loose in the church flip back a chapter in chapter 4, verse 12. Peter warns, beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you. Peter saw this tidal wave coming on the church. He wrote this epistle to warn them for it. The rest of the empire knew nothing of the fire in Rome. Peter, in Rome, heard the warnings that this was going to be hung on the church and that the empire was going to turn all its power against the Christian church. The entire epistle makes no mention of martyrdom or suffering and death related to the persecution. Where within weeks of the fire in Rome, thousands of bodies of Christians were piling up victims of persecution. So it's fairly certain that this book was written shortly after the fire in Rome and before the uh, the the bodies began to pile up. So this is July 1964. A rough decade for the church. Sixties were a turbulent decade. Late in that same year that the fire occurred in Rome, Paul was beheaded. That was the early stages of the persecution that Nero started after the fire. AD 64. Peter was caught up in the storm of persecution also. By 65 or 66, he had been crucified. Traditionally, it's said he was crucified upside down by the Romans, a victim of this persecution that he's warning the church about in 1st Peter. Peter martyred in 65 or 66. The book of 1st Peter written in 64. Paul beheaded in 64. In 67, Nero died. And with that ended Nero's persecution, but there were more and worse to come—a series of persecutions that actually dwarfed Nero's. So, as we look at First Peter and the first two verses, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, be uh, my intention in the next sermon to look at these first two verses and see that Peter jumps right in with his doctrine. He lists seven characteristics of the people of God. Right off the bat, in two verses, he calls them strangers, scattered, elect, foreknown of God, sanctified by the Spirit, sprinkled with the blood of the Son, and obedient. That's a lot to pack into two verses. Peter has a burden to warn the church to assume a defensive position. I think that the church... In Asia Minor, 19 centuries ago, and the church today are in a similar position. That is, soft, never experienced persecution, and vulnerable to it. Peter's warning to us would be, assume a defensive position. Suffering and affliction are normal. Comfort is abnormal. And comfort often results... From compromise. I think we'd do well to heed his warnings to the church in that day. All right, let's kneel for prayer.